Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow, and this is our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape in this country. On today's outstanding panel, crisis communications consultant and MSNBC political analyst, our good friend Susan Del Percio. Happy Friday, Susan. Great to be with you. And returning to the roundup, Lucy Caldwell, a veteran political strategist and tech founder and a former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, welcome back to D.C. And thanks Thank for being you. here in person. We I don't know. get to do this very much in the days of COVID. but Facts life. I know. This is really <laughs> exciting. We're finally returning to doing in-person things in the studio. And, and this, is, uh, this is super fun. On today's roundup. Chauvin's guilty verdict, the right-wing reaction, and the political will for progress on policing, Parler's impending return to the Apple ecosystem and what is and isn't protected by the First Amendment, and the flashbang Anglo-Saxon America First white supremacy caucus, and then, as we prepare to launch Politicology Plus, we thought we'd bring you one of our bonus segments this week, which will normally only be available to Politicology Plus subscribers. So today, that segment will be a discussion about Chuck Schumer's marijuana musings and the politics of his push to decriminalize cannabis. And if you want to be one of the first people to know when we launch Politicology Plus, there's a link in the show notes. You can go there and put your email address in. So let's dig in. Everyone's eyes were on a Minneapolis courtroom this week where a jury found Derek Chauvin guilty on three counts for murdering George Floyd last May. The nation overall was filled with relief that there has finally been accountability in this story and that our legal justice system can work, but it required the murder to be caught on film. And we should acknowledge Darnella Frazier, who actually filmed the event. She was 17 years old at the time. And for activists to move heaven and earth over the course of the last year to bring the Black Lives Matter movement to the mainstream. Of course, this doesn't speak for the instigators and provocateurs on the right, many of whom lamented Chauvin's conviction or called into question the integrity of the court case itself. Tucker Carlson opened his show with an inflammatory framing of the jury's verdict that was particularly absurd and unhinged, even for him. Let's take a listen. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. The jury in the Derek Chauvin trial came to a unanimous and unequivocal verdict this afternoon. Please don't hurt us. The jurors spoke for many in this country. Everyone understood perfectly well the consequences of an acquittal in this case. After nearly a year of burning and looting and murder by BLM, that was never in doubt. Last night, 2,000 miles from Minneapolis, police in Los Angeles preemptively blocked roads. Why? They knew what would happen if Derek Chauvin got off. In the end, he didn't get off. If given the maximum sentence under the law, he will spend the rest of his life in prison. Is that a fair punishment? Is the officer guilty of the specific crimes for which he was just convicted? We can debate all that, and over this hour we will. But here's what we can't debate. No mob has the right to destroy our cities. Not under any circumstances, not for any reason. No politician or media figure has the right to intimidate a jury. And no political party has the right to impose a different standard of justice on its own supporters. And then later in the same show, he booted off a law enforcement professional, former NYC corrections official Ed Gavin, as soon as Gavin mentioned that Chauvin had, in fact, used excessive force. And here's that clip. I I just think that 
It was excessive, yeah, and well, it shouldn't happen. The, and what I'd like the, to say, the guy who did it looks like he's going to spend thing, the rest of his life in prison. So I'm kind of more worried about the rest of the country, which, thanks to police inaction, in case you haven't noticed, is like boarded up. <laughs> so that's more my concern. But, but I appreciate look, you coming look, on, look, Ed Gavin. Thank look, you. Look. Nope, done. Thank you. Okay, that's enough of Tucker. Lucy, the only reason I want to spend any time or oxygen talking about Tucker Carlson is because it's important we understand the information and arguments that millions of people are consuming, and he has a massive and loyal following. So we saw Florida Governor Ron DeSantis echo the claim that the jury was scared of what a mob may do. So let's just do this uh, you know, relatively quickly. Let's deconstruct and debunk the argument he's making here because the jury was unanimous after just 11 hours of deliberation, exceedingly fast, and Chauvin was convicted because of the facts of the case, period. And even, even the often unhinged Janine Pirro took the same position. So why won't Carlson, as the de facto standard bearer of white grievance nationalism, admit the same? Yeah, it's hard to know. I I think actually John Berman talked about this this on CNN this week. Is this a chicken or the egg problem? Is Fox News sort of brass pushing out these messages because it's it's what the base wants to hear? Is this the base's view? And that's why these kinds of messages are given this voice? Or is the base taking on this view because of the messages that they're receiving from folks like Tucker Carlson. So it's it's really tough. I think that through a lot of this, we see that this is not just an opinion. This yeah. is disinformation. It yeah. is disinformation to claim that people who took to the streets to protest last year were violent. 96% yeah. of Black Lives Matter protests were peaceful. Most of the violence that occurred occurred because of instigators that were opposing the protests or police officers, unfortunately. And so it is fine to say things like we want businesses to be protected and looting is bad. I think the vast majority of Americans and the vast majority of mainstream Democrats would agree to that. This is uh, painting a picture for Fox viewers. And it's not just Fox. It's Ben Shapiro's listeners. Mm-hmm. It's people who are watching even less <laughs> mainstream networks like OAN. It is painting a picture of a country that is really not accurate, of a country where there are just fires left and right in the streets and business people are having to board up their businesses. And it is just disinformation. I don't know why they're putting out these messages, it is very hard. I've spent a lot of time trying to figure, make sense of this, and it is very hard to not feel that this gets back to white identity politics. But it's definitely unfortunate. Susan, how is Tucker invoking the mass movement for police accountability as a mechanism to sow doubt in this case? And why? Like, what's the communications strategy here, if it's anything beyond just, you know, Uh, ratings play? Well, yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. And, you know, all three of us have been inside of political operations and understand how political things work. What's interesting is, is that TV executives and television hosts really don't. And that's what I think we're seeing with Fox News, why they're kind of taking these big swings and misses is because right now the majority of Republicans agreed with the outcome of the Chauvin trial. The 
and and I want to and again, the majority of Americans are okay with how Biden is handling the COVID response. We are not fired up, nor do we have someone like Donald Trump constantly stoking the flames. So I think that they are trying to become leaders on issues without a prominent voice mm. to follow, if you will, or have them follow or vice versa, which was the whole Trump relationship for five years. And, you know, Tucker may try as he wants. And I think that's why he goes as extreme as he does, because he's just not catching on. But I don't think that people are buying it as much as as they are hoping and exec the executives are hoping they will, because right now there weren't riots. They had to show they showed riots from last summer to make their point. I mean, <laughs> yeah. and they're getting called yeah. out on it and people are, are coming down. And yes, they are. You know, don't get me wrong. There is that base that is anti-Semitic, that is racist, that is xenophobic. But they also are kind of happy not to be always charged up. <laughs> and 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 I think that's where it, there's an interesting thing happening now with the media and where Trumpism survives. Again, if Donald Trump speaks and no one pays attention, does it matter? <laughs> See the tree in the forest? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I always want to agree with Susan, but I am afraid I can't on one point here, which is that Actually, the data that I've seen about Republicans and their sense of the verdict, it's a very narrow majority of people who agree with the verdict in the Chauvin trial. It's something like 55 percent by Whoa. some measures. I mean, we would want to see a much I bigger number. A, I, I saw 53 percent, but I also saw 27 percent were undecided. So that ratio of of ant, against the verdict for for the verdict was, was substantial in itself. This That's is polling that was conducted following the following the announcement. Yeah, and it's so it's so recent that of course, you know, we'll have better numbers in coming days. I guess either way, we continue to ratchet down our expectations of Republicans yeah. and of and of right-wing media. I think they can get they, much lower. Yeah, they okay, continue yeah. to ratchet up their commitment to culture wars and yeah. their commitment to dividing members of peaceful communities with law enforcement, making them feel like they're each other's enemies. So speaking of but law does enforcement, that, I'm sorry, just, yeah, 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 go just, ahead. And I'll, I'll throw this back kind of to yeah. both of you then is does, but does that mean that that base that we always talked about being, you know, 30%, like it's a small amount. It's, is that becoming a smaller amount of Republicans that will stand firm in that zone versus the Republicans we saw vote for Biden and are open to Democrats um, because of things like the protests that we saw and how Republicans handled it. Are you saying, are you, are you asking if, if that number is shrinking? What I'm saying is, is I think that we're going back to that hardcore number mm. of 30, mm. whereas coming off of the election, it was much higher because we were divided and people were taking sides. I think that number is, is in that 30 and that's, you know, even higher than what the number of who people have disagreed with the Schoenberg. And it's not just that. It's a lot of other different issues. If, if you look at that 30 is a hard 30 and there's a more persuadable amount of people out there who maybe are just not going to be as divided and aren't as angry because it's not about Donald Trump. Yeah. I don't know, but my sense is that the 30 is a really hard 30 and that it's probably growing and not shrinking, but I don't, I don't know. That's a, we should ask Mike that. What do you think, Lizzie? Yeah, I think that that is sort of a question for Mike Madrid. You know, is this 
something that looks kind of like the way that the Republican Party continues to become more regional, yeah. more um, less powerful, but yeah. more dug in and ever, than ever. And the Anglo-Saxon caucus. Oh we'll get God. to that yeah. later, but but yeah. that would be in keeping with that. <laughs> so, so my question about about this, you know, part of the story is what does the response say about the true beliefs and principles of the law and order crowd? And I put law and order in air quotes, which is a phrase that Trump weaponized, obviously, to great success last year. What does this say when our criminal justice system has worked? The institution that we were hoping would function as it's supposed to worked. Law and order crowd says no. What do you make of that? Yeah, I think that there are differing views about whether or not this will become an impetus for more reform of policing. Uh, you know, there are folks on the Hill have said that there are some things that just must be in any kind of reform package, things like revoking qualified immunity. I mean, when you look at the numbers, police killings of Americans is a huge, huge problem. I mean, the Washington Post has been tracking police killings since 2015. There have been more than 5,000 Americans killed by police. Now, another entity has been tracking police convictions for much longer, since 2005. There have only been 140 members of law enforcement charged in, in wow. killings. Only a third of them have been convicted of anything, and only seven have been convicted of murder. So when you even just think about, you just extrapolate, okay, we know that there are 5,000 people since 2015. Let's assume with that math, there have been about 15,000 since 2005. I mean, seven murder convictions mm -hmm. just cannot possibly be that only seven of, say, 15,000 yeah. were. So I think it really is a matter of asking police to be honest about this and yeah. asking police to really think about how to come to terms. I've been very heartened this week, actually, by a few pieces, a few metrics and a few pieces that have come out, I think, that signal that there is energy among some members of the law and order community. Yeah, yeah. There's a, I would say this is like required reading. There's a great op-ed in the Post that I know you read. So good. By Patrick Skinner, who's a police officer in Savannah, Georgia. He actually was also, earlier in his career, a U.S. Capitol policeman, which is really interesting. And he wrote this piece in the Post about what the Chauvin verdict signals for people like him. And he says, what should police do with that? And he says, we need to individually be having a reckoning. And he said something that I thought was amazing. Yeah. He said, the first thing is actually something that needs to not happen. Police must not be defensive. We must not circle the wagons. Not all cops, in quotes, is exactly the wrong reaction. Even though that is true, of course not all cops are bad, it is also irrelevant. Systemic reform is inseparable from individual change. We need both, and they have to feed off each other. So I thought, beautiful, so personal, and such a personal commitment to change. And, and I think even that has been echoed by other folks. Um, the police chief in Miami today gave an interview where he talked about how he thinks that a lot of these anti-riot bills going around the country— are wrong and unnecessary and that and that it is not good yeah. for communities. I noticed that in a couple of other states where bills like this are making their way through, a lot of the the rhetoric about protecting police, the kind of blue lives matter crowd, it's not even coming from law enforcement. Uh, some of the folks who lobby on behalf of police in in states like Iowa have said that a bunch of provisions in in states like um, making punishment harsher for people in protest, 
that they have not even asked for those provisions, that those are provisions coming from Republican politicians. Yeah. So yeah. it's culture wars, culture wars, culture wars. But I think hopefully if communities can break down that division and maybe have some conversations between law enforcement and members of the community, I actually am leaving this week feeling hopeful. Yeah, I was Definitely hopeful after I read that piece just this morning. It was really terrific. Uh, Susan, I don't know if you had a ch- had a chance to see it, but what do you make of what Lucy just pointed out is that, the, that these bills, which we'll talk about a little bit more, are being promulgated by Republican officials, may actually not even have the buy-in of the law enforcement communities that 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 they're trying to bolster, right? What happens when Republicans are pushing for... Um, uh, anti, anti-riot legislation that when the law enforcement organizations themselves don't buy in to what they're trying to push and are actually looking at how to reform and better engage with their communities themselves. For example, um, in Oklahoma, they're going to not allow you to video a um, police a, a police in action, oh if God. you will. So you're no longer allowed to... Basically, the thing, the that, thing that convicted yeah, Derek yeah. Chauvin, that very... You know, and that's also not, you know, we shouldn't forget that there are police, you know, they wear cameras, they're aware of each other, they still act in a certain way. And as much as I believe that I would like to see that this leading the way and changing people's minds, I think that can happen over time. We still live in a place where the way to affect change, immediate change, is through primitive damages. Now, quantified immunity, which Lucy brought up, that's not, that only applies to civil cases. So one idea that's come up as a potential compromise by Tim Scott, who's been leading mm-hmm. the way in the Senate, has been to hold police departments civilly responsible. Now, this to me is a fascinating idea and could actually force more change than if you made the individual cop, because it'll, it will force police departments to crack down on their own. And that was the major thing that we, I mean, not the major thing, obviously Chauvin being found guilty was the major thing, but the out, one thing that came out of that trial was seeing the police chief saying, no, what this officer did was wrong. And there are more cops out there that think like that and are happy that the bet that, you know, those who do wrong are called out. And, but they also need a safe environment to do that, if you will, because there is that blue wall. And so when we start looking at some of these these regulations, these new laws, law enforcement as a whole is good. And if at least that's what I believe. And if you believe that they don't like these laws because they want the transparency also, it makes it easier for Mm. them. It allows the public to see what actually happened and hold those accountable who do wrong. So the fact that we, you know, those numbers that Lucy ticked off were were so outstanding when you think, you know, something like what, 22 not even seven, you said, were were held when to convicted of manslaughter of of murder. Well, I think those numbers start to change when you see more cops being involved and not being literally, you know, yeah. joking around, yeah. handcuffed to these yeah. policies. So it could be very interesting to see some real changes. It looks like in Washington right now, the one of the sticking points will actually be on the chokehold, banning that. But all of these are now the question is now on compromise, not on being absolute because this woke up the world. This woke up, you know, and and yet we had three more incidents happen from the time I think they rested their cases to, to when the verdict was read 
in the Chauvin case. And I now find myself, and I consider myself a pretty big law and order person, but I do consider myself when I hear those, when I hear that, the first thing I'm like, not again. Yeah. Yeah. And and that is that has happened to so many people who you would say are moderate Republicans or just maybe even just in the suburbs or not necessarily as connected to police policing matters who always said, believe the cops. It's now, oh no, not again. Yeah. So to both your points, there is now a large growing appetite for rethinking and reworking how and when police engage in communities. And I want to talk about the politics of this for a minute. So according to Axios, and I mean the politics of actually getting something done. So according to Axios, senior Democratic and Republican aides suggested that the convictions have lessened pressure for change, noting parallels to our cyclical, predictable gun control debate that we have in the wake of every major gun violence tragedy. But Politico... Uh, on the other hand, noted that the convictions actually increased the pressure on the Senate to enact nationwide police reform, but that progress has stalled and that there probably was not a viable path in the Senate for the bills already passed by the House, um, including the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. So I want to talk about the pressure on lawmakers for a minute to actually get something done. Is there more or less of an impetus to pass major reforms in the wake of the guilty verdicts. And before you both answer, while you're thinking about that, Senator Doug Jones was on the roundup earlier this month, and I want to play a clip of what he said about uh, what would happen after the ruling. Let's roll that. I hope it'll have a big effect, no matter which way it goes. If he is found guilty of something, it's going to give impetus for those voices for police reform that were out there last summer, uh, that were protesting, uh, peacefully protesting to say, we let this moment pass, let's don't let it pass again. The same is true if he is found not guilty. It still empowers those voices to say, the system is not only broken when it comes to excessive force, but now we know that it is broken with regard to the legal system because you cannot blame the jury. So Susan, you were here on the roundup uh, with the good senator that day. Why don't you start? How do you see this? Do you agree with him? I do. I mean, I do think we are on a path. I think the problem sometimes is when the the, the light is too bright and too hot mm. on on the legislators, because, for example, as I mentioned, you know, the, the Senate and the House, there are talks that have been going on for quite some time. Um, I think they're actually helped. They started under Donald Trump, where he just blew everything up and left Tim Scott hanging out to dry. So now they're coming back and having these conversations and it's a conversation about compromise. What is interesting about, you know, the George Floyd bill is that if they can actually do some compromising, it will show us that right now our legislation is is no longer too too big to succeed and that's probably what we've seen most recently is that we try and put too many things into into one bill and make it like the answer to all of our woes, like as if everything will be fixed if we just pass this one bill on this one issue. But um, I'm actually, I'm hopeful on it. I think that there's room for people for both sides. And I do think this, this verdict did create somewhat of a sea change. Lucy? Yeah, I agree with everything Susan said. I think we have to be so careful about not thinking that an omnibus bill federally is the answer to our problems. I think we could find ourselves going down the road of having 
another conversation about the filibuster in this yeah. in this yep. <laughs> situation because it is just so incredibly frustrating to think about reforms that are supported by the vast majority of Americans that are basically being held hostage because of the filibuster. And they're being held hostage not only because of Democrats' unwillingness to do away with the filibuster, but because of Republicans' unwillingness to represent their constituents. You have people like uh, Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema falling over herself to talk about the painstaking lengths she goes to represent all Arizonans, people like Joe Manchin. Where are the Republican equivalents of Cinema and Manchin? I mean, it's easy to beat those two senators up a lot over that, but where are the Republican senators from purple states talking about representing their constituents who share these views? So it's a little bit, it's a little bit, um, it's frustrating because you want to see reforms get through. And I think on this issue more than any other, so if we think about this compared to, say, voting rights issues. Yeah, yeah. I'm often kind of like Miss Federalism. I love to see states innovate ideas. I think actually police reform is going to be very, very hard to get through states in mm, any meaningful way. Because we're all controlled by very sort of like dug in Republican legislatures. Absolutely. And, and unions. And, and, and unions, Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And this is the thing that I wrote a lot about years ago about the unique hold that police unions have on Republican state legislators that they don't really have federally. Yeah. And so this has to be done federally, yeah. I think. It really does. And I think it is a matter of thinking what are, again, the core provisions and having a bill that is narrow enough that it becomes really hard for Republicans to make the case that they're going to vote against it. If all of these bills were coming through in a much more narrow fashion, we might actually have passed already a whole bunch of things that currently are all rolled up into an omnibus bill. Maybe we would have passed five bills and take them as discrete things. So far, nothing has really passed. So I hope that this will be an opportunity for Democrats to take another look at their decision-making around the filibuster. And and I'll keep my fingers crossed. The, the Tim Scott piece is a hopeful sign that maybe we could yeah. make a little bit of progress here. Yeah, I was going to say, lightning question to, to both or either of you. How do we make this, if it's possible, make this a bipartisan issue? Uh, is there a conservative argument for reform and does it win? I think, I mean, this can get through if they if both sides compromise. There is room for, and, and that, this is the important thing. There is room for both sides to compromise within their own delegations. Like they can, it can be supported. P possibly. <laughs> we'll see. We'll okay. see. Democrats have to stop acting like they are not in control of the White House, yeah. House yeah. and Senate. Yeah. Like, like you guys are in power. charge. So do it. Yeah. Like get it done. Okay. Parlor. Earlier this week, Apple signaled a path for the messaging slash social media app Parlor to make a return to the App Store. Parlor had been removed after the January 6th insurrection when it became apparent that the attackers used the platform for planning and coordination, and much of the rhetoric and disinformation that ignited the siege was spread there as well. Google banned Parler from the Google Play Store, and Parler remains banned from Amazon's web services, which is the technology stack that powers a lot of the internet. I want to talk about Parler, though, through the arguments that we see around the First Amendment. Uh, Parler itself was created because of a perceived attack on the freedom of speech of some users on other platforms, and Republicans have now attacked big tech with claims that they are silencing conservative voices. 
Now, obviously, to us anyway, the First Amendment does not protect an individual's right to use a platform to say whatever they want, but it does protect private companies' rights to moderate their own platforms and to their freedom of association. These arguments from the right seem to me to boil down to the First Amendment protects my right to say whatever I want, whenever I want, and not suffer any consequences, which is ludicrous. You know, maybe this is too simplistic, but I separate the people making these claims into two categories. And the first is the people who are truly ignorant to what the freedom of speech and expression actually means in this country, namely that the First Amendment was designed to prevent the government from infringing on freedom of expression, not private citizens or corporations. And then the second category, I would put the people who actually understand this quite well, including major right-wing media figures, but who are weaponizing this ignorance of the people in the first category. Um, feel free to disagree, take that apart, but that's how I see these, the, you know, the, there are two factions here, but they're both saying the same thing. And one is doing it uh, sort of out of not knowing better, and the other one is doing it maliciously. So Susan, why do Republicans, and especially those who know better, get this so wrong? Because they want to. They are choosing to spout their own opinions on something versus, you know, wanting to be factual. This is a case of, oh, well, now we have a place we can we can condemn as well. It's not just on on the left. And it's it's a really interesting thing that we see happening. But this is this is just a, a, a knee jerk reaction by the right because they can. And that's all they have. So I think they want to. I don't think they actually, if you asked any of them about Parler six months ago or a year ago, they would care less because it was a small platform. Guess what? If it comes back, still a small platform, but it's now one that could be lauded by the likes of, you know, Donald Trump and um, Tucker Carlson. But that's all it, that's what it has become. And that's why it also has to be shut. You know, it was shut down because it was weaponized and it was dangerous. And we, you know, there's, there's, a, it's a unique situation when it comes to big tech, when you can have yeah. such bipartisanship yeah. on thinking it's bad. Yeah. <laughs> so, so at least there's that, but I mean, trying to untangle it is a mess. And I do have concerns because while there are those um, weaponizing it, some of the, you know, that platform, there is issues of, of, of political free speech. And I hate that we're seeing it being or let's put it this way, I feel like we're tackling the issues of these platforms on a political front, which is is really kind of tricky and, and sticky versus on maybe, you know, if you looked at pornography on these platforms, like you could say like, you know, this is where everyone kind of stands because it's, everyone's against it. So I think it becomes a little tricky because we are dealing with political free speech. Yeah. Lucy, first of all, do you agree with my categorization? And and why do you think that sowing confusion about the First Amendment, what it does and doesn't protect, is beneficial to them in the long run? I was thinking that if this continues to run its course and the people abusing the ignorance um, that, I, that I mentioned convince a larger and larger group of people that um, that their First Amendment rights are being trampled upon by these big corporations. Ultimately, the courts are going to side against them. And does that just 
feed into a bigger fundraising push and more anger that they're, you know, basically it just reinforces their position and makes them angrier and, and makes the political case even stronger, doesn't it? Yeah, I do agree with you. I think that you have, well, I agree with you because <laughs> I think, I mean, think about, I mean, people who listen to politicology are highly engaged, highly sophisticated yeah. listeners. Yeah. The vast majority of Americans don't really participate, right, in that manner, even remotely. Most people can barely remember things from civics. I almost said physics. I never took physics. <laughs> that too. <laughs> I, never I never even took it. Uh, but <laughs> I do know the the that people don't even know, like, is, is they don't, they often don't when they're interacting with the government. They don't even know, am I interacting with the federal government, local government, right. state government? Um, they don't know the three branches of government. Right. And, and I'm actually not even taking issue with that. But, well, I mean, it would be nice if we had a more informed nice electorate. Nice if we had a more robust civic education but, process, but, too. But, yes. but sort of no comment on that other than to say that what people like, say, a J.D. Vance are doing, what Fox News types are doing, what people like Becca Mercer, who is oh a longtime funder of Parler and many other causes, we, and I'll get to <laughs> let, Let's take a sidebar on that in a second, because yeah. I want you to tell everybody who Rebecca Mercer is, but go ahead. <laughs> that group, who absolutely knows the difference between free speech and you know private entities versus public entities and what's allowable and what's not, they are working to really convince the former group those really probably many hardworking, mm -hmm. you know, kind-hearted Americans who just are not very enlightened about this, that that Google making a business decision is the same as you being muzzled in the public square. And Parler is not an alternate social media platform. Parler is a disinformation engine. Mm -hmm. And when you hear people like Becca Mercer say things like, we are working to bring our content moderation practices of Parler into a manner to avoid posts that would, quote, not fall within the protections of the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. That's so telling. It yes. Is, it is that in and of itself is so disingenuous. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, so this is a, we'll come back to the Becca Mercer sidebar in a second. But the question, really the big question here to both of you is, what do they want to do on parlor that they can't do elsewhere what is it that that like why do we need this additional platform in the first place what is it they're trying to do here i think they're trying to spew hate and rile up as many people they as they can it's almost like the in between between the net and the dark net like it's like this weird place mm -hmm. that only white supremacy and races and, and yeah. all these things bad things exist that they can actually talk to one another i think it's it's actually if, you know, what is it? There's a saying about like, if you can't say it in front of, you know, your mother or your, or your somebody, like it's just, you shouldn't say it at all. But it, it's that kind of thing. If you can't exist if in, in, in a platform, you know, like Twitter or, or other things, like you're pretty extreme. And this is a, this is a place for extremists. That's all it is. They are saying, we want to do that. And we will try and get more and more people to come. It's a recruiting mechanism is really at the end of the day. I think that's what it becomes. They are using it as a recruiting mechanism. Okay. Same question, Lucy. But also, do you think there is any merit to the idea that creating a place for the worst of the internet 
keeps it at least in a place where you can you can monitor it and see what's happening as opposed to if this weren't an option for everybody who wants to be on this platform, where would it go, right? Would you drive it into darker and darker corners where you can't predict or you can't see whether or not there's another insurrection brewing? Yeah, I think that you can make an argument for that in either case because I think on the one hand, there is the kind of deep web fear, right? Yeah. On the other hand, part of what makes a platform like Parler dangerous is that most people are not going to become sucked into sort of the dark web and underworld. And part of what is dangerous about platforms like Parler is that they have grown their reach and they want to be normalized and they're trying to normalize themselves. So Parler only had 10 million users had really blown up, but only had 10 million users before the election last fall. And then almost overnight had like 15 million users, right? Having been a really no-name platform. And this is not just Parler kind of like having a more laissez-faire view about speech. Parler also actively promotes disinformation. In late November, I think it was like November 23rd, Parler put out a press release where they accused cable networks of erroneously referring to Joe Biden as the president-elect, as if to just further spew hate this this totally false idea that Biden was not president. And, you know, that gets back to the players behind Parler and their well-known history of Parler is just one small piece of what they're trying to do. Yeah. Um, Not for nothing, but I did read some some confidential research on Parler last year uh, that made it very clear that they were tied to Russian interests and Russian disinformation campaigns, possibly even funded by them. And Rebecca Mercer? Oh, my gosh. Should I tell my Becca Mercer story? Sure, why not? <laughs> no. I, look, the the long and the short of it is Becca Mercer is a billionaireess heiress, but she, who did once have a passion for selling artisanal cookies, but that is not what her true love. What she's selling anymore. <laughs> <laughs> she's an incredibly savvy, highly sophisticated person who is trying to really create a parallel media apparatus, not just through media, but think of all content channels that anyone could possibly consume to really rival the mainstream. So that means funding all kinds of entities, and it means promoting a ton of coordination between those entities. So she was one of the earliest funders of Breitbart, a major funder. Um, She is incredibly close with Steve Bannon. She uh, worked very, very hard to uh, promote Ted Cruz in 2016. And when Ted Cruz was DOA, she turned her attention to Trump. She's the person who installed Kellyanne Conway. Cambridge Analytica. As And she also. was the major funder of Cambridge Analytica. Yep. And I was the chief strategy officer of a company at the time that had some Republican clients. And when she decided there might be a nexus between Cambridge Analytica and my former company, she tried to buy our company. Wow. But we declined. But she does this with nonprofits. She was on the board of the Goldwater Institute. And it is this is she is a, an activist board member. She is a person wow. who is asking people who are, say, the leadership of Goldwater to go meet with Breitbart, right? Like Becca is gonna send a plane and you will go meet with this person. I mean, this wow. is a person who has very, very grand ambitions. I think with Parlor. She's kind of rolling with it. This is probably much more successful than she could have dreamed it would be. 
And, and she's now the new CEO, by the way, I think, right, or acting right, CEO right, because she got right, rid of the old guy, right, the other right, guy. Right. Yeah. Um, but she has always been the puppet master of all of this. Um, you know, the the other, the former CEO was just some random IT guy who had worked for her father. Um, but but the, the truth is that she is really not just promoting a social network. This is not a business-minded decision. If, if Parler were trying to make business decisions, Parler would doing, be doing everything to maximize its ability to be on Google, Apple, all of these platforms, make nice with Amazon. Instead, they're doing warfare. Right. It's bogus. Right. Becca knows what she's doing. And this is really an effort to silo not just hardcore Republicans, but really grow the the silo of some Americans who identify as conservative, who are being fed lies by Becca on her other media platforms Mm -hmm. like Breitbart. (laughs) It is a coordinated attack to isolate large swaths of (sighs) Americans from each other and sow discord. Yeah. Susan, last question to you as a strategist. Apple doesn't have to do this right? They have the right, protected by the First Amendment, to not associate with Parler. And given that we've had recent conversations about um, corporations' newfound uh, desire to engage in politics in a way and a scale that we haven't seen before, if you were sitting in Apple's boardroom, how would you advise them? Do not engage with them. I mean, the, and and again, it goes to our previous conversations about corporate activism and on issues But also another issue that came up last week, which I thought was interesting, is when we talked about the employees and their reaction. I think that they could really suffer a major um, backlash from their own employees. Plus, it's simply it's, you know, when, when corporations try and get involved in political fights, choose good government like you're always better off. And this is just one of those places that they do not. They should do what's right. And it's very clear what's right. There's nothing beneficial for them. Maybe a few bucks, but really at the end of the day, it's Apple. They don't need Parler to be successful. Yeah. And they stand to lose a lot in terms of their reputation over this. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. Okay. The America First Caucus. Late last week, Punchbowl News, a new DC insider-ish media company, obtained a memo spilling the details and platform of a new caucus to, quote, push President Trump's values. I don't know what that means. Being led by none other than uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar from your home state, Arizona. Oh, my God. Um, uh, (laughs) Matt Gates quickly announced he would join the caucus and Louis Gohmert from Texas had signaled interest as well. The memo is disgustingly and nakedly nativist and also furthers the big lie of widespread voter fraud in 2020, which did not exist. Here are a few choice quotes. America is a nation with a border and a culture strengthened by a common respect for uniquely, wait for it, Anglo-Saxon political traditions, end quote. History has shown that societal trust and political unity are threatened when foreign citizens are imported en masse into a country. And lastly, across the country, federal elections have been undermined by using voting machines that are readily compromised and illegally accessed, whereby results appear manipulated, voters are disenfranchised, and faith in our system eroded. 
So it was quickly slammed by Democrats as a white supremacist caucus. Uh, A handful of Republicans followed, including John Katko of New York, freshman Republican Michelle Steele from Orange County, and Nancy Mace from Charleston. Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney and Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. McCarthy tweeted, The Republican Party is the party of Lincoln and the party of more opportunity for all Americans, not nativist dog whistles. And finally, we should note the problem here is that Marjorie Taylor Greene's spokesperson, uh, Nick Dyer, confirmed the existence of the group to Forbes in a statement that said, to be on the lookout for public release of the America First Caucus platform when it's released publicly very soon. So, and and she has since sort of, uh, you know, denied (laughs) any involvement at all with any of this. And so... First of all, all three of us know how congressional staffs work, and I don't buy the walk back, but I want to see what you think. You know, how likely is it that this was just the work of rogue staff, as Marjorie wants us to believe? And what does this say about her reliance on Hill staffers? Every member of Congress relies a lot on Hill staffers. Um, the idea that this was rogue staff, the chances of that are... Zero. (laughs) Negative zero. You you forgot. You didn't mention my favorite part. The the best gem of it was saying that the caucus, quote, will work toward an infrastructure that reflects the architectural engineering and aesthetic value that befits the progeny of European architecture. The progeny of European architecture. So she wants all of the buildings to look the same. Like she wants, like, (laughs) what does that mean? The progeny of European architecture. Who wrote that? I mean, it's also, I mean, (laughs) has she seen, has she seen Anglo-Saxon? I know. I'm actually looking for, (laughs) thatch roofs are so hot right now. Oh my God. Susan, like, what do you, like, the story, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. So first of all, let's just think about this. Marjorie Taylor Greene is not on any committee. So like, of course this is all she's focused (laughs) on. She's got nothing else to do while she's there. Yeah. But I I will kind of creep in a little bit more diabolical intent here. And that is um, what also was released earlier that week was the announcement of the America First. Sound familiar? Policy Institute, which was made up of Trump officials. And while the Policies Institute is um, the policy, America First Policy Institute is um, much sharper and, and, and much better written, well written and, and everything else and has been like PR eyes. Nicely if you packaged, will. if you will. Yeah, it's yeah. a beautiful package. It's very short. It doesn't <laughs> lend itself to. Um, kind of that kind of language of Marjorie Taylor Greene's caucus. But it does sound eerily familiar. And you can't, I mean, I'm sorry, in the land of Donald Trump, where there's, you're going to tell me the America First Policy Institute is not related to the America First Caucus. And and I find that, and, and the Institute is the C3, a nonprofit. So that is a really dangerous combination right there and potentially illegal. but. It, there's a reason why McCarthy walked back this so quickly. And it seems to have even even Marjorie Taylor Greene tried to say, like, no, I don't support this yep. yet. Yep. You know, yep. <laughs> but, she, you know, it, it's because it is outrageous and inappropriate. But it will come back. 
I mean, someone they will get someone from a DCPR firm to to fix it up and make it look a certain way, and it will come back. I actually feel worried about this kind of thing for a different reason, which is that I think that it's kind of this whole episode is kind of a win for Republicans in Congress because Marjorie Taylor Greene is like this foil, yeah. right? Like, oh, we stripped her of her committee assignments. Like, yep. don't look here. Look, we're disavowing this stuff. Oh, my right? God. I totally agree. So John Kako. She's their test balloon. Totally. For everything vicious totally. that they want to do. You, exactly. That's a great way to put it. So, like, you know, like you have some members being, this has no place in our party. We're the party of Lincoln. And it gives them this plausible deniability. It's sort of like she's like they're really effed up Overton window, basically, right? So, like, you know, we're not—yeah, we're not going to be the Anglo-Saxon caucus, but we are going to continue to push forward this really ugly stuff over here. But don't look at that. It's almost like this is the new post-Trump sort of approach. The old Trump was like, I haven't even seen that. I haven't seen—no. Suddenly, they're all getting the news. I was going to say that. So, so my take from this was, like, even the moderate, like, the people who want to portray themselves as moderates, to put that in air quotes now, who are trying to claim, oh, the Republican Party is diverse. This isn't who we are. I just read that as gaslighting and completely out of touch and fucking laughable because there's been zero accountability for the insurrection at the Capitol where they work. And I just like, is it, is this, is, is this approach going to work for them to pretend that we're, we're back to the before Trump days that, that, that we're that we're all reasonable. That we care about the the things that we you know the small government fiscal like I see it as as gaslighting, and I don't I I don't know if it's going to work, but it's it's repulsive. Susan, is it going to work? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a challenge because don't forget these same Republicans have to go back to that current Trump base to get reelected yes. if they face a primary. So. I, I don't necessarily think anyone's going to buy into it for no other reason that in six, eight months, we're going to hear all of the same elected officials, you know, have these Trump-like views. And OK, so they're not for the America First Caucus. So they're for the America First Policy Institute. I mean, what's the difference? Like they will, but they will have to go back to their their Trump roots, if you will. Yeah. Um, no matter how shallow they may be. But that because they're going to be worried about primaries and, and the same thing at the national level. Um, you know, the RNC can, even though there's no pictures of Donald Trump on its website, they still can't walk away from him. Yeah. That's only because he said, you can't use that for fundraising. <laughs> Cause true. I get to, that's the only reason he's not there. So here's what I would say to the people who are saying, this isn't who we are like Liz Cheney or Kevin McCarthy if this isn't who you are or who you want the Republican Party to be, then precisely how much money are you going to spend defeating these people in their primaries? If this isn't who you are or who you want to be, what are you going to do about it? Zero. They're going to do zero. And and this is, I think, the test balloon idea. You're exactly right about this. This episode, just like everything else we've already talked about today, it is culture wars, culture wars, culture wars. So you're right. Marjorie Taylor Greene is their test balloon for everything. They walk this stuff back. But how many times have you heard a person who's still identifying as a conservative or a conservative Republican say something like, well, no, we can't even talk about this anymore, but, or I would never say this in public, but, and then they say something (laughs) that you think, 
I don't, I wish you didn't think that. I wish you didn't think that in the first place. (laughs) And so even in this episode, you could imagine even people who find Marjorie Taylor Greene distasteful saying, well, she kind of, she has a, she has a point because, and, and it just is culture wars. And it's, it's almost like a signal. It's like a bat signal. Like, Hey, we're still looking after your interests. Nice, aggrieved white folks. That's right. So they're not going to do anything to shut this down. Marjorie Taylor Greene, they won't be able to, they won't be able to do anything about her because she's raising money. Oh my God. She raised more money than Liz Cheney did by two, by a factor of two. Tons of time to raise money. Uh, Yeah. Right. (laughs) She doesn't actually work. So Uh, (laughs) she does CrossFit exercises badly. But anyway, Susan, last thoughts on this. It's so disheartening. It is disheartening and it will happen many more times. I'm sorry to say, and it will take different forms, but Again, you know, Lindsay makes a great point. Look how much money she raised off of it. Like that's oh, part of this, by the part way. Of this. Part, I mean, like the they are, and and she's not raising money from her district. No. she's raising nation money nationwide. Yeah. And and you know, just to bring it back, like that's why a place like Parla wants to exist. <laughs> All right, now that we're up to speed on the biggest stories of the week. What stories are you following that may have flown under the radar or that our listeners might have missed, but they're going to influence our politics in some way we might not expect, Lucy? All right. Well, I think this is going to influence our politics in ways we probably do expect (laughs) because it's top of mind for a lot of people. I think that as we, um, as many more people have had a chance to be vaccinated, we're quickly reaching an inflection point where there's the the issue is demand. It's can we get folks who you know bought into the idea of getting vaccinated? We also at the same time have a lot of data about the use of outdoor masks, and there has been a lot of interesting coverage this week, including public health experts, people like Ashish Jha, who's the dean of public health at Brown and is frequently on TV, asking people to social distance and be careful, saying we really don't need to wear masks outside anymore. Mm. And there was a big piece in The Atlantic by Derek Thompson. There was a big piece in Slate. Sanjay Gupta was talking about how low the risk of transmission is outside. And at the same time, there's now this kind of, because of this sort of social signaling, big commitment Mm -hmm. to being careful and really that comes from a good place. There's a big sort of reaction to that. Like, what the hell? You know, we need to be wearing our masks and people who are not wearing their masks outside are bad. So I'm interested in that conversation as it evolves, because in a way, early on in the pandemic, you kind of need group shaming to be the way to get people to be responsible and care about their neighbors. And now we have a lot of people increasingly vaccinated. It is no question super important to wear your mask inside, but a lot of really overwhelming evidence pushed forward, including by public health experts who are anything but but exceptionally careful about COVID saying we should look at this again. So I hope that state and local officials will take a look at some of their outdoor mask mandates. And, and I say that because I think it's incredibly important in terms of the ongoing public trust for people in the mainstream, in the mainstream media on the left to signal and really cut off at the knees, right wing talking points about how this is just a sort of command and control sort of situation and everyone's going to have to stay inside for the rest of their lives to show like, look, we're looking at outdoor mask use and we see that maybe we don't need to keep doing that. So 
that's what I'm thinking about as I'm back in Washington and yeah. walking down which is, the street. Which is full very of people, well vaccinated. Yeah. Well vaccinated and well masked. Yeah. <laughs> so I think so you bring up something really interesting there, which is that we have had this, we've created this new social norm more so around actually wearing masks than about following the science as it evolves around mask wear, wearing. That's a really right? good way to put it. Um, because it has been true all along that this was going to change, right? That right. As, as more people get vaccinated, the, the public health recommendations would change and would evolve. And now that's happening. And yet what we're going to see from the right is very likely, oh, look, they changed their minds. Yes, that's a good point. I hadn't even thought about that. But you are certainly going to be right about that. <laughs> um, Susan, what do you got this week? Um, actually, I'm going to springboard off of, of that conversation and say I'm looking more internationally at COVID-19 and how our policies of America first just can't cut it. Um, and the reason why is without the J&J vaccination, um, a lot of uh, poor countries will not accept it. So we're not seeing vaccination rates at the levels that we should. And because we are a global economy, I'll just give you two numbers that just shocked me. Um, yesterday, there were 312,000 cases of COVID-19 reported in Whoa. India. 314. Whoa. I mean, like, that's a lot. Whoa. Now, also last week, we had 5.2 million cases globally reported. We do not live in a vacuum here. And President Biden now has been facing some pressure to release some vaccine as we are doing such a good job, we're con continuing to um, manufacture it. What is he going to do as far as, you know, being part of the global consortium that is responsible for, for getting it out? Uh, again, J&J &J is, is really a problem there. We're working with Canada, I think just yes, just this week, there was a conversation between Prime Minister of Canada and, and President Biden. But I am I'm really concerned with the impact that has and, and, and the way our allies who are now coming back to us, but how people look at that as, as us as a country that they don't really trust because trust us because of that America first um, four years of hell with Donald Trump that they had to go, that they couldn't they did not have a partner. But um, our influence in the world stage is going to be critical now, not just economically, but literally when it comes to the health of our global friends and partners. Yeah, totally agree. Um, I just had a great conversation with Molly McHugh about what's happening at the Russian border right now, but really how that challenge is going to set the tone for the Biden administration's ability to reassert America uh, on the world stage as even as increasingly more and more Americans in both sort of in both extremes of both parties are feeling less inclined toward foreign entanglements. So you have you have Bernie Democrats who say it's not our right and you have like uh, Trumpy Republicans who say it's not our job. And it, this it creates this sort of as she put it, a pincer of, of I, I would call it isolationist tendencies uh, on the part of the American people, which is going to make it really difficult for the Biden administration to conduct more traditional foreign policy exercises. So uh, watch that space and check out that conversation. 
My quick story is about Venmo, which just announced that it is going to be rolling out Bitcoin to its platform. And this also follows uh, Square Cash. Uh, the Square Cash app has had Bitcoin um, available since 2018, and PayPal added the ability to buy, hold, and sell cryptocurrency in November. And so the reason I'm following this is because I think that as more and more, and we have we have many conversations to come about the evolution of finance, not just in America but around the world. But as more companies adopt, big institutions adopt Bitcoin and roll it out to more people, what's happening is that the underlying technology is becoming abstracted to the consumer, which is only going to fuel, I think, more adoption because people don't actually have to understand how the blockchain works or what proof of work is for mining Bitcoin. They don't have to, because it's right there in their Venmo app. So I'm watching that very closely. I think it's very interesting. And uh, more soon on finance. Before I let you go, where can everybody find you, Susan? On Twitter, Del Percio S. Lucy? On Twitter, at Lucy M. Caldwell. And I'm on Twitter, at Ron Steslow. And we'll see you next week. This is our bonus segment, Hello Politicology Plus. Tuesday marked 420, which is the unofficial holiday celebration of cannabis consumption and culture. And increasingly in recent years, it's been the day we see a small but growing number of politicians banging the drum on legalization. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer marked the occasion by announcing that a group of senators working to end the federal prohibition on marijuana is aiming to have draft legislation, quote, in the near future. And earlier this month, Schumer said he'd move on legalization with or without Biden's blessing, telling Politico he wanted to give Biden a little time to study it. But at some point, we're going to move forward, period. So I think there is... Something interesting to talk about here, which is the political win-win potentially for Schumer of putting a bill forward. Because if it passes, uh, everybody wins. I mean, I would argue everybody wins. <laughs> I mean, we, we should, I, I understand this is a fairly contentious subject, but I would argue everybody wins. And if it fails, it's a, it becomes a fundraising tool and a rallying cry uh, for him and for most Democrats in general. And in both cases, he can use uh, racial justice and criminal justice reform to his advantage so I wonder how you think about that from a communications um, perspective, Susan. Well, it is a good message because that's that's the message they want to put forward. What it all comes down to and why there is a look to make marijuana legally nationally is because of banking regulations. Right. Marijuana is now big, big, big business. And banks cannot take them in because of the the what it, marijuana is considered at a certain level, I forget the specific um, schedule level one. of, I'm sorry? It's a schedule one. A schedule one. Yeah. So that is what it comes down to. And that also prevents people from moving it across state lines. So people are growing it. They want to move it and they want to bank. And those are the, pro those are the issues that really are motivating Democrats and Republicans alike uh, when it comes to legalizing marijuana. Um, it is, I think, now legal for, for recreational or some kind of medical use in like something like 40 some odd states. I mean, everyone has most Americans have some form of access. There's still pushback. And Schumer's facing that pushback in his own caucus as well. Yeah. Um, 
there are some Democrats who don't who are very much against it. And there are some very legitimate issues. We just yep. passed it here in New York. But one of the issues here is recreational there. Yes. Recreational okay. marijuana is New York City or New the York. whole state, the whole state. OK, um, municipalities can opt out, which several are. Um, but there's a this was a place where law enforcement had a big issue because of driving under the influence um, remains a, a, a troubling way of monitoring issue. But um, the criminal justice aspect yeah. is also very important because in a state like marijuana, marijuana, a state like New York. <laughs> okay, let me try that again. Maybe we should roll a few. York, and, uh... We are not rolling on, we are not recording on 420, just for everyone. To... <laughs> we could be. Okay. Okay. Go In ahead. a state like New York, where marijuana is now legal for recreation. You would be so fun to get stoned with, Susan. <laughs> Susan, in Washington, in Washington, there's a service where you order a smoothie on like your phone <laughs> and it's like a $60 smoothie and you pick the smoothie and then a smoothie arrives with a pre-roll joint. In the smoothie? No, no in the bag. In the smoothie. <laughs> it's your free gift with purchase. The, the, yeah, the, the, right, the joint is your free gift with purchase. Yeah. Sorry, you were saying something actually substantive. <laughs> I have no idea what I was saying. I know the marijuana. Is well, we not were talking. Okay, here. so we were talking about criminal justice reform, and here, here's a oh, few. Oh yes, I'm here- sorry. That now it will. First of all, there's yeah. a few things that happen as a result. One, a lot of people's records will be expunged, which is huge. The other is where it will be legal to sell it, like in certain areas, and like for example, in the city, and the tax dollars generated oh will Massive. go back into communities of need. Yeah. So there is, it's, it's revenue. It, it, it just hits a lot of popular points is yeah. all I'm trying to yeah. say. Yeah. Especially but, go ahead. But, but really it's about banking and, yeah. and business. Well, it's about banking and business, especially so banking and business are going to pressure both sides, but especially Republicans. Right. And then on the criminal justice reform side, you have bipartisan support generally for, or, or people working on both sides of the aisle, like the, like, Famously, the Koch brothers, right, are actually mm-hmm. really in favor of criminal justice reform. So you, it seems like um, it's and Biden has been, I think, reluctant to say anything positive about this at all. But it seems like this might be something where we could see bipartisan agreement. So just so people understand how big a deal this would be for criminal justice reform. It's estimated over 40,000 incarcerations are uh, weed-related, are marijuana-related. In 2018, 40% of drug arrests were marijuana-related. 92% of those arrests were for possession, not sale or manufacturing, just possession. Um, And on average, someone is arrested for a marijuana offense every 58 seconds. That's from the Drug Policy Alliance. And we should mention that black people are nearly four times more likely than white people to be arrested for marijuana possession. That's according to the ACLU. So... Yeah, Lucy, what are you, how do you, you're Colorado, you just spent a lot of time in Colorado and the, the, the banking infrastructure is a major problem there, but also the revenue that is produced for the state is massive. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's really kind of striking about Chuck Schumer deciding that like a great, a great time to have a press gaggle is 420, (laughs) uh, is to think about how fast this has all changed. Uh Colorado made recreational marijuana legal 
in 2012. Yep. That was not that long ago. Um, and so to think that since then, we've had 17 states and Guam, I understand, which, you know, to get back to Marjorie God Taylor Greene. Yeah. <laughs> part of the U.S. for everyone listening at home. <laughs> uh that that's such a fast change. Yeah. It's so fast. It's less than 10 years. And so you now have a situation where 40% of Americans live in states where it's legal recreationally. And the the you're right, it's a win-win for Schumer because Americans overwhelmingly support legalization. I think that when you think about kind of why it's so critical, in kind of the way that all of these issues we've talked about today are kind of come back to culture wars, but you just think about what the practical implications are for, say, a young black teenager being arrested for having a joint in his pocket, right? It just spirals, right? It's like, okay, then you have a criminal record, right? And then the next time that you, that something happens, you are, um, the next time you get pulled over for speeding, you have a record and then you suddenly have you, your record is sort of like piling up, right? And then you hear these horrible stories. Someone who's like, oh, no, you're actually life in prison, or you're just a person who can never find a job. And so, I mean, it is, I think for some Americans who are lucky, it's like a, this is fun. It's like, you know, it's fun for sort of like, you know, young white professionals, right? But but marijuana has been one of these ways that we perpetuate really terrible class divides, right? Like, I mean, most people who are kind of like, affluent, upper-income white people, they go to college, you're super, super insulated from cops, right? It's probably unusual to go to college and not try weed, you know, if not becoming a person who partakes in it. Now, if you're a person who isn't afforded those opportunities and you're a young black teenager in sort of like an, an inner city somewhere or just an urban environment, you suddenly have cops raining down on you and pretty soon you're just stuck in the system over something so stupid, over something that is really not, there's not evidence that it's a gateway drug, right? You're you're basically at the mercy of, of basically just a moralistic system. Yeah. So, you know, the House did take up a bill, I think in the last couple of weeks, to make some of the, ease some of the challenges around the business regulations. Yeah. Um, I hope they continue to push forward that way. I think States pushing forward to in in some states where they still haven't made marijuana legal, yeah. they have they have decriminalized possession, um, and so I think that all of those reforms can really go a long way in basically just like resetting the balance in our in our communities and and being honest about the fact that this is really not more dangerous than yeah. the brown liquor on your bar cart yeah. It seems like there's just so much on the on the on the side of legal. There's just so many forces on both on both parties that there should be huge interest in this. And yet, it seems to be stuck. Uh, at least in the Senate, it is not a, it is not a foregone conclusion that this would pass. Yeah, I think at some point they will figure out a way of changing its status when it comes to allowing banking around it. I think mm. that will be part of the. I think compromise, you're probably right. Short-term yeah. compromise is that's where they have to really find the tweaks because then it really becomes and also driving across state lines. Um, if if those two things happen, there's no way other states. It's almost like casino gambling. Like other p- states are going to want to be competitive. 
Um, business will, you know, these are big businesses. Yeah. These aren't like mom and pop, like they have a few, you know, right. acres in the back. Yeah. This is like Philip Morris business. is getting in the game, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, a friend of mine bought stock in one of those companies and was like about six years ago. And yeah. I was like, dang, I missed the boat on that. But um yeah. It's it, it is it is really going to be business driven. I understand all the other pros of it. Um I also think it's good that we'll also have stand it has to be standardized. Yeah. So it will take really out important. a lot of other, you know, elements um that that do lead to gateway drugs for example, like if you know you're not going to get something laced or yeah. you know um a genetically modified yeah. type of yeah, buying something from a dispensary is so much safer. So much than, safer. Than, so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was reading a little bit about in the aftermath of Schumer's uh, 420 spot. Great tweet. Yeah. I, uh, I uh, was reading about some of the Democrats who are who remain impediments to this yeah. in the Senate. And it's people like Jean Shaheen, who's yeah, a senator from that. New Hampshire. And she's just promoting a big lie herself. Total big lie. She she tied it to the She's opioid like, yeah, crisis. Everyone's going to become She called it a addict. gateway drug basically. Yeah, and there just actually is not evidence and this has been well studied by groups like Rand, nonpartisan entities that any evidence there's there's plenty of evidence to the contrary. I mean, if right. any kind of study that you would infer that marijuana is a gateway drug to heroin, yeah. whatever. Well, people who use drugs are probably more likely to use drugs, right? <laughs> and so there's plenty of evidence to the contrary. There yeah. is just really not good evidence that it is a gateway drug at all. And I, I don't know the answer to this. It's just something that I was thinking, kind of wheels returning as I read about Jean Shaheen and what she said. I thought, what are the forces behind the scenes here that remain sort of yeah. larger impediments? Yeah. Like, is this a pharma problem? Yeah, that's is a good question. For, yeah. like, Why is Jean Shaheen sales? saying that? Because she right. probably doesn't actually believe that because right. she's smart. Right. So, yeah. Can I can I jump yeah. in? I think yeah, one yeah. of the things one of the one of the problems is parents. Mm. Um, frankly, who there, there's a lot of parent groups that are getting together now because they are worried for their kids now whether or not you know they don't necessarily think it's quote the big lie of, of what you were talking about, Lucy, but they are concerned um, of their children using something that they're not familiar with. So I think it's going to take a lot of education is probably the thing that's, that's um, hampering this um, popularity hmm. as far as it goes within certain States and certain swing districts. Millennial parents, boomer parents, what do you, what, what do you boomer think? Parents. Boomer parents. Boomer parents. Yeah. Boomer parents are not familiar with weed. <laughs> no. They, <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think when they I look get, at I it, take, the I problem take your is, point. And in their case, they may be, which is the problem. Uh, you know, I, I think a lot of people, a lot of people in recent years have had the experience of learning when they're home for Christmas or something <laughs> that their boomer parents in states that have legalized weed are actually having boomer yeah. fun with their boomer friends <laughs> at their boomer parties with their boomer moms. So, you know. But they're not worried about the, they, but That's again, true. it goes yeah. to kids driving. Like in New yeah. York, yeah, I don't the driving make light is, of that at all. Yeah, yeah I mean, it deal. does go to, yeah. like in New York, you're going to be able to go to the equivalent of a bar yeah. that can't sell liquor, yeah. <laughs> but can sell weed. Yeah. Yep. And people are going to hang out. And like, those are, le I mean, you have to recognize them as legitimate concerns, which means you have to have the education aspect of it. But that's how you that's how you start taking away some of that stigma that's not 
maybe we should maybe we should just maybe we should the the sort of right amendment for the Schumer package is to just really focus on some strains like sort of like (laughs) you know on the kind of continuum of like sativa to indica which one's the one that makes people more agitated like indica right we would say sativa sativa makes people relax yeah what's allegedly although there's been some research now that basically like all the strain (laughs) stuff that you read is really just marketing now and there really isn't but okay so the dc insider thing would be you form a study committee a study committee gets formed, and they recommend the strains that uh, make people nicer and more mellow, and it's going to solve. And then we are actually going to mandate that cops take oh edibles. God. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> But, you know, not uh, just, like, not for nothing, educating that we will now have a more yeah. watched um, or more influenced on, on the the security or whatever yeah, that it's, yeah, yeah, it's regulated, regulated, regulated and taxed. It's yep. a great part of the education yep. component. Totally. Because it, your kids are going to buy it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, so wouldn't you rather buy have one way or another? You know Don't you want them to know where they're getting? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's Possibly. the same argument as sex ed. Yeah, I just thought that. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. But like, they still don't like that. So I mean, right. some of them. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Politicology Plus. Hope you enjoyed. (laughs) We'll see you next week. Thank you to everyone at home or on the go for listening. If you have any questions or advice for us, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. We love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show and find this work meaningful, you can also help us by rating and reviewing us wherever you get your podcasts and by sharing this episode. And make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at politicologypod. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>